morning. Good morning. We can all say good morning. <laughs> you can say standing. Just a couple of quick announcements real quick. Uh, um, fill out the connection card, either um, there in front of you or, or on our website or through PushPay. Um, that way we'll be able to keep... Uh, Keep informed. Keep you informed with any updates. And online giving, safe and easy way to do that is also through uh, push pay and uh, absolutely no transmission of coronavirus. Doing it that way too. <laughs> um, youth group tonight at five thirty. Contact Travis for the location. Apparently, it's top secret. Only to Travis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all. Let's continue worship.
thank you, Father, um, for giving us your Son in a time of great need, the moment that uh, we as humanity made the choice to turn from you, Father, your grace shone bright, and uh, your Son, uh, through his death and resurrection, made that clear. And we get to be a, a part of that death and resurrection uh, through the Spirit now and today. We thank you. You are the everlasting God. And your name is the name that we call for salvation. We thank you and uh, bless this morning uh, with the message and all my family here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. How you guys doing? That's very, very true, and yet sometimes it's hard for us to keep that reality in the forefront of our hearts and our minds as, as life runs around us without our permission. <clears throat> I just want you guys to know I'm doing well, and... Uh, as one of my favorite speakers once said, that means, ah! Um, it, just because the reality of, of life is that as, as we engage, as we do different things, um, you know, we think we have this battle won, or we think we have this hurdle taken, taken care of, and then, and then you turn around, you get hit in the head by something else. And uh, I, I won't, well, I ended up having to apologize to my bride this last week because I, I, uh, my mouth got away from me. I know that's a surprise to many of you, I'm sure. Especially after having just taught through James. Well, we're not supposed to do that. But the truth is that, is that life is difficult. Challenges that we face are real. And um, as Jesus walks with his disciples, he actually he, he's teaching them re- reality and truth that is profoundly appropriate and and applicable to their lives. And this is one of those times in the text in Mark. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 20, but I want to remind you where we've been, right? Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem. His disciples know that he's in danger doing this. They show up and they come into town late and he looks around and sees the, the, the temple and the worship that's happening and, and all of the process and they go home that night. They actually go out to Bethany and then they come back um, the next day, and on their way in, he sees the fig tree, and it, it, he goes up to it expecting to have fruit because it's in full leaf. The, the leaves have come out um, in full, and, and he curses it. And they continue into town, and Jesus comes in, and we call it cleansing the temple. The interesting thing with cleansing the temple is that he really didn't set right the worship of that place, Right? They, they didn't fix the heart issues that were present. He just cleaned out some of the distractions, uh, some of the, the commercialism, the, the, the distractions that might be there to keep others, to keep genuine worshipers out of the temple. But he really didn't set it. He didn't clean it. He didn't get it back to where it was supposed to be. And I believe that's part of the point. And then as they're leaving town, as they passed by, um, they saw the fig tree and that it had withered. And so it appears that sometime within that, within that time frame of a day or more or so, that they come back by the fig tree and it's withered to its roots, as specifically referenced in the passage. And, and apparently it happened in such an such a immediate fashion. It was such a quick response that it really caused the disciples to marvel. And so that's where we're at as we read this text, as we engage in this particular, um, in what we uh, many people actually call the uh, curse of the fig tree explained. That's how a lot of um, the commentators actually address this particular text. In fact, I think if you look in your Bible, you'll actually see it um, referenced there as well as the heading. The challenge for me in this is I'm reading through this, God or Jesus doesn't do what I expected him to do with this. Like I open this up, I'm like, okay, if if I were to just look at this on the outside, I would say there was no fruit in Israel, so therefore that's that's what you see happening here. And 
and, and, and that's the explanation. And I believe there's some application to that, and there's some truth, and we'll look at that here shortly. But when we read this text, I want you to just take a minute and imagine that you're sitting with Jesus at this point. You've seen what he's just done in the temple. You've seen what he's done with his fig tree, and he begins to explain it to you. And then he says what he says here. I just want you to wrestle with where Jesus goes, um, and I'll explain what I mean here in just a second. Open your Bibles to Matthew or to Mark chapter 11, verse 20, and follow along with me. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. In my heart, as I, I mean, personally, as I read through this, um, I, I really expected him to have a conversation about fruit, right? I mean, he's talking about a fig tree. There was no fruit on it. It was supposed to have, you know, there was leaves on it. it. He expected to find something that wasn't there. And then he goes into the temple and he'd expect to find fruit from people faithfully following the Lord. I would have expected him to have said something about the lack of fruit. I think the beautiful part about Scripture is that for the Jews that are reading this, especially one that would know the Old Testament, there probably wasn't a great deal of explanation needed. Because when we see the fig tree withered to its roots, when you look at the imagery of a fig tree in the Old Testament, it is tied to the, the, either the blessing or the absence of blessing, or we could call it the discipline of God. And I just wanna, I want you to see um, how important the fig tree is in the nation of Israel and in the promises of God, but also the evidence of it in his discipline. So look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 6. How many of you read Deuteronomy? It's in the front of your Bible, towards the front. It's not one of the ones we typically read in our daily devotions very often, unless it's in our Bible reading plan, right? But it's very interesting to see What God is sharing, or Moses is actually sharing with the people of the Lord here at this point in time. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this, starting in verse 6. So you, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you to, into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills a land of wheat and barley, of figs and fig trees and pomegranates, and a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, there's a ton more, and again, if... I always encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter so you get the context of where, where this is coming from and, and, and everything that's involved with this. But in this particular text, you actually see that the expectation of Israel is that they would keep the commandments of the Lord and that they would walk in His ways and, and by fearing Him. They would experience all of these blessings in this new land that He's sending to them by keeping His commands and walking in His ways and living in fear of Him. And out of that, they would have bread, with, they would not need anything. They would have bread without scarcity. They would be full. They, all of the resources that they would need would be present. He's sending them to this land, this amazing place that he would provide for them in and within relationship to him. All of these things would be available. A contrast to that. The contrast to that we see in Joel chapter 1 starting in verse 7. Healthy fig tree is a sign of God's blessing to Israel. A withered fig tree 
is a sign of God's discipline or him removing this blessing. Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth. The grain offering and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed and the grounds mourn. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And we see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. The Lord is speaking here in Jeremiah eight thirteen, and he says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs, on the fig trees, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So here we have this, this sign of the fig tree, this evidence of the curse uh, that Jesus placed on it, saying, You'll, no one will ever eat from you again. He goes into the temple, and out as he comes, the disciples recognize this, and they're amazed by how, how quickly the fig tree withers. It's, it's astonishing to them. And they point it out. And Jesus turns to them, and in that moment, what does he say to them? What, what does he say? It's in the text. Have faith. Have faith in what? Have faith in God. Yeah, you're seeing something pretty amazing. In fact, he's probably trying to help the disciples get their hearts around what's coming after this. Because Jesus knows where he's going. The disciples still haven't figured out. They're, they're kind of still wrestling with who's going to be the most important in his kingdom when he takes over and, and gets the Romans out of the way and establishes the kingdom. And yet Jesus says, have faith in God. Now, there, there are some interpretations of this. Different pe- people vary on this. Everything from uh, whatever you ask in the name of God you'll get to, to uh, you know, from a very, very uh, charismatic viewpoint um, where, where God's obligated to give you to the other side where it's just merely a, 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 an example or just imagery to help us understand how great God is. I tend to land a little bit more in the middle of those things. But one of the things we know about how, what Jesus says here, because if you look back in the text, he says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. There is a time, you'll actually find it in Revelation, where the mountain is picked up and thrown into the sea, and it's God's judgment. That's when it's referenced in Scripture, of when this is going to happen. What is Jesus pointing his disciples to? It's the judgment of God coming on Israel. But in the midst of that judgment, what are they supposed to do? Have faith in God. Keep their eyes on the Lord. The amazing part is the faith that it takes to move a mountain is the size of a mustard seed, right? And Jesus has pointed out to his disciples already, you don't even have that much. You're struggling to believe even these simple things, and it's because their faith is not in the Lord yet. Their faith, they don't really know God as they're going to, but they're growing in that, and, and he's pointing to them, and he continues to teach them this particular truth. In fact, in the description, look, look at Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 20. This is, the other, this is Matthew's uh, uh, account of the fig tree, the curse of the fig tree. We'll just pick up Matthew twenty, starting in ver- or Matthew twenty-one, starting in verse twenty. And it says this: When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, "How did the fig tree wither at once?" And Jesus answered them, "Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith." Now, the challenge for you and me, right, is that when we ask for something, if it doesn't happen, what do we question? Did I just not have enough faith? Now, what I love about the Scripture is that it, it, we can interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? What, what have we learned from James over the last month? 
This is the impromptu quiz. Y'all have been sitting at home way too long. It wasn't summer break. What have we learned from James over the last month about the tongue? Chapter 4. He says that what? We quarrel and there's quarrels and disputes among you. Why? Because we don't get what we want, so we murder. We kill one another because we're not getting what he wants, what we want. Look at, look at James chapter 4. Starting in verse 3. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I absolutely believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that as we know the will of the Father, as we study and surrender our lives and, and trust and, and follow Him, He does answer our prayers. He shows up and He accomplishes those things. But so, so often our prayers are not focused on His will, they're focused on ours. One of the great challenges that we have to ask ourselves is what we've been praying for through Corona. Regardless of where you are at on this, and I know we're all over the page and, and I'm as messed up as everybody else in this whole thing, but what have we been praying for? Have we been praying that we could come back to church and, and just go back to normal? Some of us have. Have we been praying for massive uh, uh, um, revival in the church that we would never be the same? Some of us have. Have we prayed that God would crush the enemy under, the, under his heel? Yeah, some of us have. I've went and looked in Psalms. It's there. You can pray that prayer. But the question is, what's our heart in this? Why am I praying that? I shared with you guys, I don't know if it was last week, all this stuff is all blended together now between Wednesday and Sunday. I have no idea what day it is. It is Sunday, right? Um. But I shared with you guys that I was having a hard time praying for a particular governor's salvation. Absolutely, that's the only thing that's going to be that, that any hope for our nation is that the church becomes so vitally alive that the gospel becomes the problem. Until the gospel becomes what's really eating at our country, we're not effectively doing it right. Quite honestly, most of my prayers, unfortunately, are oftentimes about me, about my comfort, my needs, the things that I think I want. I was talking with Craig about it this morning, about, about where things are going and what's going to happen. And, you know, part of what I've struggled with is that I don't want what I think is coming is to come. Not because I don't want the Lord to come, but because I'm looking at my boys and I'm looking at grandchildren and I'm going, God, would you lament? Would you, would you relent from bringing disaster? The question that we have to ask is, how are we praying? Yes, if I had enough faith, I could pray and a mountain would move. But I think it has to be within the will of God. It comes from being connected to Him and knowing Him and, and being intimately dependent and surrendered to His will. Je Jesus actually teaches us, His disciples, how to pray. They started to get it. They're like, okay, Lord, then teach us how to pray because clearly we're getting this all wrong. Matthew chapter 6. Start, starting in verse 9, but you need to know that in the context here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is pointing out to his disciples, do you see the men over there? Do you see the ones standing and praying in this particular fashion? They're praying for the approval and the praise of men. They are doing what they're doing so that men around them would stand and go, oh, look at that man of God. So holy. Oh, if I could only be like him. That's the praise that these Pharisees were praying for. And Jesus says, don't, you, don't follow their example. They're gonna, they've received all that they will get from God, and that is the praise of men.
And then in the second point in verse 7, he goes on to the idea of heaping empty phrases. Don't, don't just babble in your prayer, as the Gentiles do. He, he addresses both the worldly and the religious at that time. He says, don't be like them in your prayer, but rather pray like this. Verse 9 of Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Jesus actually engages with his disciples and he's teaching them how to pray. And what does he first start off with? He puts God in his right place. Hallowed be your name. You are the person of worship. You are the focal point of our hope, our faith. You are worthy of all of our praise, our fear, our adoration, our respect, our reverence. God, you are God. And the second part that he does is your kingdom come, your will be done. I surrender. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Who said that in the Bible? In a real life scenario? This is where Sunday school class, Jesus is the right answer. Jesus did. Right? As he's going to the cross, he asked God the Father three times if there was another way for this to happen. He'd like for the cup to be passed. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he says, give us what we need. Wouldn't it have been cool if he said, give us what we need and maybe two or three things that we want? I mean, that's how we would have wrote this. Some of why you know the Bible is true is because when you read it, you're just like, no man would have wrote it that way. Wouldn't have happened. Right? I mean, it's really how we, I mean, it's how I pray. Lord, your will be done as long as it's not too difficult. Or doesn't cost me too much or take too long. I'd like to get home for the game. And he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which we'll talk about that in just a moment. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, you got to fight the battles. you got to fight the battle for us. We know we have armor. We know we're supposed to be ready. We know that we're preparing for a race. All of those things are true, but our focus, our, the emphasis that Jesus is giving his disciples is have faith in God. And what you ask, you will receive. The great conviction of our hearts, though, should be what are we asking for? Can we honestly say this morning, God, not my will, but yours be done, regardless of what that is? One of the great challenges for me over the last couple of weeks has been how um, intense the conviction in my own heart about how I'm living um, my life as a disciple, whether or not being a disciple of Christ is the highest priority for me or if other things are higher than that. And uh, I think some days it's the highest priority. I mean, I think some days we do pretty good, right? We at least have one day. I mean, we're like, okay, I came to church this week, Lord. It was tough. The real question is, can, are, are we living surrendered lives? I way too often tend to explain my point to God more than once. If we could just talk about it one more time, Lord. This is what I'm thinking. And I'll be honest with you guys. You know, if the text would end right there, I would have been really uncomfortable with it. If, if in Mark, if Jesus would have just said, Ask and believe, and you'll get it. Just believe in God. I would have been really okay with that. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? 
he meddles even more, which falls right in line with what he's teaching in, in Matthew. And it's, it's, to me, it's one, of the, it's one of the more beautiful pictures of how incredibly connected Jesus is with the heart of God and what he's calling the church to be. What does he say? Look at, look at this text in Mark. Verse 24, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. We just saw in Matthew chapter 6 that this isn't something new that Jesus is teaching. This is an expectation that he has for all of those who follow him. This is, the, the, this is what he expects of us as his children. Whenever you stand praying, do you see what the, the, the implication here is? Whenever you come to God, you have to come having forgiven everybody anything. Serious? You guys, are you reading what I'm reading? Do you see the consequences of that? So that your Father in heaven will forgive you your trespasses. This isn't like, hey, it's a good way to live your life. It'll be better for you this way. You'll have better relationships. That's not the point. Whenever you stand to pray, forgive anyone. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your trespasses. I think one of the great challenges for us as a church is to recognize that we are probably going to be held to a higher account than even Israel. And this is my personal opinion. I'm, I'm sharing with you my heart on this. But we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. The Holy Spirit indwelling His children, interpreting, comforting, helping. We have the Word of God, not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, which, which translates a lot of the Old Testament. It actually teaches us the character and nature of God. We see Paul and Jesus and other writers of the New Testament explaining the Old Testament prophecies, explaining the picture of Christ, what was coming in the Messiah. God's plan for Israel and His forgiveness for us. I think we should be, take this very, very seriously and maybe even consider that we can't be in a right relationship with God if we're not in a right relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church. But Lord, do you know the people you gave me? Lord, do you know the, do you know the people that are at our church? Have you met them? He says, yeah, I died for them. I created them. They're my craftsmanship. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew. We're going to be, this, this passage in Matthew is, is one of the great teaching times of Jesus, and um, it's got a lot to speak to us in this particular area. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, this is the segment on anger, <clears throat> where he says that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And he wraps this up in Matthew 5.23 and says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You could say that God is, isn't going to accept your worship until you make your relationship right with your brother. It interferes with our ability to do that. In fact, we know even in 1 Peter, Peter talks about how a husband treats his wife and how if we don't do that according to his plan, if we don't treat her the way that he's called us to treat her, that it hinders our prayers to him. He takes this very, very seriously. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. God takes this part of the relationship within the body very, very seriously. And he lays it out in this text. That there is a deep need for the church. There's a deep need for his disciples specifically to have their eyes on God, to be in faith, to be trusting God for all of the difficult things that were going to come, that, that when they hit these hard things, that their prayers being connected to the Lord would have power and would have results, and that they could trust that, that they could have faith in God in, these minutes, in, the, in those moments that were coming, and they needed to keep their eyes on him. But in the midst of all those difficult things, in the midst of needing the faith that could move a mountain, he says to them, forgive. Be sure that as much as you're concerned about your relationship with me and about asking for things for me and about being connected to the power that can, that can shrivel up this fig tree, that you are concerned about your relationship with one another. Do, we, do you guys know that the disciples had problems? Relationally, right? I mean, just a few weeks ago, I know it was longer than that probably in their lives, but a few weeks ago, James and John were asking to be sit, seated at the right and left hand of God, and the rest of the group was like, hey! That's not right. Right? They were all working. They were all suffering. They all gave up stuff. But James and John thought they should be at his right and left hand. These boys had problems. They argued and fought. Would you do me this favor? I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're not going to read any text. But I just want you to see how Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the Beatitudes, and, and we follow up past the, 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 the prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And I just want you to see that Jesus isn't teaching them something new. This is what he's teaching the people. He's been teaching them all of this stuff all the time, and I believe it's part of what we are supposed to look at as the body of believers. He's, he's teaching through the character traits and, and all of these amazing things, everything from divorce, anger, retaliation, lust, ang- uh, uh, being salt and light, um, loving your enemies. He's teaching all of that stuff in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we get into giving to the needy. He then goes into the Lord's Prayer, talks about fasting and the, the, the need to have our focus on God, to be, to be taking away the physical things of this earth and, and, and getting our eyes on the Lord and keeping our focus there and doing that with the right heart. He then jumps in and says, lay up treasures in heavens. Be focused on the things of heaven, not the things on earth. Put your value, put your energy into the things that are eternal, not temporal. He then has the audacity to tell his disciples to not be anxious for anything, but to trust God, referencing at some point the number of hairs on their head, I believe. Verse In chapter 7, he says, don't judge other people lest you be judged. That God's going to judge you with the same judgment you use on, one, on others. Ask and it will be given. Talks about seeking the Lord and asking by faith. Doing unto others. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Verse 15, he goes into the idea of this, this issue of fruit, that, that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bear, bears bad fruit. We can be fruit inspectors in our own lives. Then he takes one of the great passages that, that so often uh, we run to and look at it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, and he reminds us that not everyone who calls out my name will, be, will I receive into heaven. He will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And then the end of that chapter, he talks about building a foundation, and we're, the, the people are in awe, building your house on a solid foundation on the rock, and the people are in awe of the authority of God. And the people actually say at the end of this that they're, they're just astonished because he's taught with authority unlike anyone else that they've heard. Do you see the pattern? Get our eyes on Jesus. Know his will. Pray, in the way, pray for his will. Pray for, for his things to be done. Don't be anxious. Don't judge one another. Ask with faith. 
Treat one another as you want to be treated and be fruit inspectors of your own lives. You know, it's a lot easier, I think, for us to, uh, to not do this in our culture of church in America, right? Because if you don't like somebody, you just go to another church. If you have a conflict, you, you, just, you can go to another church. It's, in fact, it's, some of you probably drive past several churches to get here. But we are a culture of convenience, not a culture of holiness. And the American church is just as guilty, I believe, maybe even more than the Jewish uh, priests and, and, and Pharisees of Jesus' day. And looking at the Word of God and saying, well, it'll be okay if I don't do all of it. Yeah, that's a good idea, but you don't know how they've treated me. That, that's great, but you don't know what I've gone through. The opportunity for the church has never been more, never been more right. The need for the gospel has never been more evident than I can ever remember in my lifetime as a nation. What are we doing? What are we doing? Whenever you stand and pray, forgive. Whatever you pray for, believe. As the challenge for me this week was, God, do I know your will? Am I connected to what you actually want to have happen? I think I know some of it. I think I've got an idea. I've been in the scripture, and I think I've got an idea. But for me to tell you that I know exactly what he's doing this week, with our governor, with, with, with all of the chaos that's happening all across this country, I have no idea what, he's, what, he, what his short-term plan is. Fortunately for us, we have the book of Revelation. We know what the long-term plan is, right? Some of you guys are like, yeah, robes dipped in blood. There's part of me that is, I, I want that. I want his return. I want all of those things to be true, but... I'm convinced that what God's calling us to do today is to be faithful today. And as long as I have breath, I believe my job is to extol the name of God and to be a gospel light to the community and people around me. Which means that I have to go and ask for forgiveness because I offend people. I have to go and apologize because I do things wrong, I screw up, and I, I, I am selfish, and at times I'm incredibly self-motivated. There are times that I have to go to the Lord and say, God, forgive me because I've chosen to sin today. And even this morning, as I got up and I realized that I was a little terrified to preach this message, I had to stop and say, God, this is yours, not mine. I didn't write this. I don't like what it reflects about my own nature. I don't like what it reflects about my own heart. I really don't like that it means that I have to forgive people. There's something gratifying about being justified in my anger. And yet our example is Jesus who went to the cross not for a grateful nation. Not for repentant people. But for weak sinners who are his enemy. And he says, go and do the same. Love like I did. Forgive like I did. Walk like me. And then when he sees us in heaven, the good shepherd will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Not everything we want. 
only what we need. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, may you be glorified in the worship of your church today, not because we're doing it so well, but because we're broken by your word, because we see in our own lives the fragile uh, weakness and frailty of a flesh-ridden nation. And as James is so directly pointed out, that the church is susceptible to being murderers and adulterers and liars, just like the world. It feels like at times it's almost our tendency to try and befriend the world, to, 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 to keep our eyes on their things and to be focused on those things. But you've called us to live outside of the world. Yes, we're here, and yes, we are responsible to be godly people here. And, and I absolutely believe that we have that responsibility. But our first priority is to die to ourselves and follow you. Not my will but yours be done today. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in our body that is struggling with unforgiveness, slander, gossip, bitterness, whatever those things are, Father, that you would not allow them to sleep or rest until they address these issues. Do not, I plead with you, do not leave us in complacency. Do not leave us in our comfort. Your word says that many will say, Lord, we did all these things in your name, and you'll say, depart. I never knew you. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our hearts, God, that we would change and be like you. To God be the glory. Won't you join us with uh, our final song?
thank you, God, for your convicting word um, spoken from your mouth um, by your holy word. And I pray that um, it would pierce our hearts as the spirits long and um, just continue to move us to pursue you, to pursue your face and um, in love pursue one another uh, with reconciliation and forgiveness and humility. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, in this time and age, even for me, it's like, it's the hardest thing to do, honestly. But uh, with God, all things are possible. So we cry out to you, and uh, we thank you, and then we move as the church, as the body, together in love and in truth. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen.